Peace be to you. In the last lesson, we studied the Old Testament prophecies showing that Jesus Christ alone was pre-announced. Now we must study the New Testament documents concerning his life, but still from the historical point of view. As yet, we do not know that the scriptures are inspired. It may be asked if there were so many prophecies in the Old Testament, why did not the Jews accept them? Why did they not recognize Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah? Well, one reason is this. They made no objection to the fulfillment of individual prophecies in our Lord, but the general conception which the rabbis had formed of the Messiah differed totally from that in which he revealed himself. Remember that the Jews had been subjected for centuries to all manner of political slavery by the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Greeks, and the Romans. Wasn't it natural, therefore, for them to begin to lose the spiritual aspects of the promises and to begin to expect a Savior who would save them from political bondage rather than from the spiritual bondage of sin. And that was what happened. In many instances, the Romans were walking their streets. Roman judges were in their courtrooms. Naturally, therefore, they thought the Savior means a political liberator. And then, in any case, why should we be blaming them? Remember, we have exactly the same prophecies today in the Old Testament, and they're just as valid for us as they were for the Jews. Why do not many more believe them today than actually do? Now to return to this problem, just as there is evolution in the material universe, so there's a gradual unfolding of the divine plan in the spiritual universe. In the cosmos, man has a very unique position. All evolution tends toward him. Everything beneath him ministers to his purposes. Chemicals, plants, animals would never have come into being if there had not been a higher creature which they were destined to serve, namely man. Evolution has God for its cause, man for its goal. Now, as the material universe is a vestibule for man, so all human history, Jew and Gentile, is a vestibule for Christ. As the universe would be chaos without man to organize it, so history would be meaningless if it were not a highway which provided the way for man to realize his capacities for love and truth in Christ. Now, this centrality of Christ in history is revealed in the New Testament. But here we must make certain ideas very clear. First, though it is too early to speak of the church, we must, however, anticipate just a bit and tell you that the church did not come out of the Bible. 
The church did not begin as a religion of a book. It was first preached as a living voice, fallen not from a pen, but from the lips of the master. The doctrine of the church in the beginning was not a collection of writings, but what was called the word of God, the word of salvation. And the first apostles and ministers of the church were called ministers of the word. A second point. Our Lord did not write. Nor were the Gospels written immediately after his death. It was only when the church had emerged from her cradle and borne her zeal across Asia Minor, Greece, as far as Rome of the Caesars, it was only then that the New Testament was written. The only time our blessed Lord ever wrote was in the sand on the occasion when a woman was taken in adultery. Nor did our Lord tell his apostles to write. Our Lord did not write because he was not an author but an authority. When a man leaves a literary work behind him, there's a tendency to forget the man and to concentrate on his writings. Socrates never wrote. He was known through his disciples, and therefore his personality remains a living one. Plato, on the other hand, wrote, and he's known mostly through his writings, only secondarily in his person. Not that there's any comparison between Socrates and Christ, but the fact is Christ did not want to give grounds to the temptation to look upon his written words, or rather the words that were written about him. He wanted us to take hold of his person. He would set his doctrine not on paper, but in the members of his new covenant or new testament. The very first task of the apostles after the death of the divine master in obedience to his command was to preach Our Lord had many first-hand witnesses of his resurrection all around him. So the apostles began preaching the gospel orally. The earliest converts were gathered around the apostles to receive the revelation from their lips. They were taught by men who had seen, had heard, and had touched Christ. They learned about Christ and his gospel from those who had lived intimately with him for three years, and as it says in the Acts, had eat and also taken drink with him. A third point. It was only about 30 years after the death of our Lord that the first canonical gospels were written. And far from replacing oral teaching, the written text was a help not an obstacle to the leaders of the church. The church, therefore, existed before the Gospels. It was the church that composed the Gospels. It was in the church that the New Testament was written. 
Therefore, during the first 30 years, the church knew Christ's message chiefly through the preaching of the apostles and others. And this is the meaning of the word evangel or gospel. It means good tidings. Not a good book, but good tidings of salvation brought by the servants of the word. So it must be kept in mind, then, that the teaching of our Christ was not put into writing until the first witnesses were beginning to disappear. Actually, it was the sudden and unforeseen acceptance of Christianity by the pagans that called forth the Christian writings. Many of the writings were written to answer very specific needs of the moment. Paul, for example, had to carry on a tremendous correspondence with missions he had started. He had no intention of producing literature in the Greek sense of the word. Furthermore, the rapid growth of the church brought new problems. By the year 50, it was becoming imperative that the oral method of the teaching of the apostle should be communicated through writing so that the content of the oral teaching would be preserved. St. Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel that several attempts were made in this direction. And his statement has been verified from recently discovered fragments of hitherto unknown Gospels, though not inspired Gospels. Now, the New Testament documents will reveal that the Bible has two acts, as do many dramas in the theater. These acts are vitally related one to another. The second act is an advance upon the first, and carries the plot to its full realization. Both acts are covenants, or agreements, or testaments. Now, the, these covenants were given in the old and in the new time. One of the principal covenants of the Old Testament was given on Mount Sinai, and the new is very much related to Calvary. Under the Old Testament or covenant, God dealt with one nation only and indirectly with others. But under the New Testament, God is dealing with all nations. Under the Old Testament or Old Covenant, justification was by the law. In the New Testament, justification is by grace. The emphasis in the Old Testament was on doing certain things that God commanded, and the emphasis in the New Testament is on being something. The Old Testament created expectations, the new realizations. The old stirs a longing in the heart, the new satisfaction. In the old, man seeks God. In the new, God seeks man. In the old, man is condemned as a sinner. In the new, he's delivered from sin. If we had only the Old Testament, we would have a lock without a key, a story without a plot, a promise without a fulfillment, a seed without a fruit. If we had the New Testament without the Old, it would be an end without a beginning, a fulfillment without a promise, a superstructure without a foundation. 
as it was said long ago, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. Now we've already told you that the Old Testament had a collection of books. The number is 45. Protestant churches give the number as 38. Thus there are seven books in the Old Testament of the Catholic Bible which are not found in Protestant Bibles. What these books are, you can discover by further reading on the subject. The New Testament is composed of 27 books, four of which are historical narratives of the life of our Lord called the Gospels. Then there is an account of the early years of the Church. This is known as the Acts of the Apostles. There are 14 epistles of St. Paul. In addition to that, there are seven other epistles. Two of St. Peter, one of James, one of Jude, and three of John. And finally, at the end, there is the book called the Apocalypse, which was written by St. John, who is also the author of the fourth gospel. Now we come to each of the four documents that are known as the Gospels. It may be asked why there are four. Why should there be different accounts of our blessed Lord? Well, the answer, as we shall show, is because they were addressed to different audiences. That is something you must always keep in mind in reading each of the four Gospels. Take, for example, St. Paul's conversion. Now, that is told three times in the Acts of the Apostles. Why is it told three times? Because there was a different intention each time it was told. The first time it was told was to explain how he became an apostle. The second was Paul's defense before the Jews in the temple. And the third was Paul's defense before the Romans, namely Agrippa and Festus. So it is with the life of our Lord. Each of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote for a different audience. Secondly, because each wrote for a different audience, each wanted to bring out a different phase of the life of our Lord. Light is the same by nature and is governed always by fixed laws. But note how its reflections are infinitely varied, turning to purple, blue, gold, according to the nature upon which it shines. Light plays on different keys. And so each of the four Gospels plays a different key, because addressed to a different audience, because each one wanted to bring out one phase of the multiple variety of the person of Christ. These are the audiences principally to which each of the four address themselves. 
Matthew wrote principally for the Jews. Mark wrote principally for the Romans. Luke wrote principally for the Greeks. And John wrote for the Christian world. First we begin with Matthew. We said that Matthew wrote his gospel for the Jews. And that was to show that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. His audience was therefore a shut-in group whose gaze went not beyond the horizons of Judea. It is wholly Palestinian in character. We are steeped everywhere in Matthew and the Old Testament. It is obvious, is it not, that the very best way to convince the Jew that our Lord was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament was to quote the Old Testament and to show that our blessed Lord was pre-announced. Since, therefore, Matthew directed his gospel to the Jews, he was very careful to unite the Old and the New Testament, often quoting Christ to say, I am come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, there are 1,068 verses in the Gospel of Matthew, and about three-fifths of those are taken up with the words of our Lord. But the point to be emphasized is he is using the argument to the Jews. You must believe that Christ is the Son of God because he was prefigured, he was pre-announced, in our scriptures. There are in all, in Matthew, 129 Old Testament references. Fifty-three of them are citations or texts, and 76 are allusions. And these references are taken from 25 books of the Old Testament and from the major parts of them, too, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. We were showing that Christ was the expected Messiah, and saying that Matthew used that as his argument. That is why ten times Matthew uses the expression after a text or before a text in the Old Testament, that it might be fulfilled. For example, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Micaeus or what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And he also uses the expression which was spoken of by Jeremiah, by David, and so forth. He uses that expression 14 times. The law of the Old Testament demanded a priest, a prophet, and a king. Therefore, in the first part of the Gospel of Matthew, we find Christ presented as a king, and then we find him presented as a teacher, and then finally as a priest. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a dishonest and disloyal Jew because he sold himself out to the Romans. He was known as a publican. A publican was one who had bargained with the Romans who had captured and were masters of the country. I say he would bargain with the Romans for the collection of taxes. He might promise in our money, say, $200,000 for a certain area in Capharnaum. Then he would collect $400,000 and pocket 200000 and that was why he was so much despised by his own people. Then after he meets our Lord, and our Lord said, Come, follow me, 
Matthew leaves everything, his counting table, his money. In fact, he does take one thing with him, his pen, because he writes the gospel. And he becomes then the most patriotic of all of the evangelists. No one loves Israel more than Matthew, and he loves he loves Israel, loves the Old Testament simply because he had discovered its fulfillment. It is worth pointing out, too, how his vocation as a tax collector is reflected in what he writes. Uh, Matthew uses three words for money which occur nowhere else. Tribute, piece of money, and talent. And then he uses words like um, gold and silver which do not occur in the other Gospels. Two parables of the talent are recorded by Matthew only. He was the only one of the evangelists that would have handled that much money. Talent was worth about 300 times as much as a dollar and about 8,000 times as much as a penny, of which Mark speaks. And Matthew, the tax collector, also uses the word money changers, which does not occur elsewhere except as a debt, and to which a publican, such as Matthew, would naturally make reference. Such, in brief, is the Gospel of Matthew. Mark wrote for Gentile readers and for Roman readers in particular. The Gentile destination of the Gospel is rather evident from the fact that there are few Old Testament quotations. Furthermore, there are a number of Latin words which are found in Mark which are not found in the other Gospels. This was because he was addressing the Roman mind. He therefore omits certain parables which had a Jewish significance, like the labors in the vineyard, the parable of the two sons, and the marriage of the king's son. Old Testament scripture and prophecy, which meant so much to the Jew, did not mean quite so much to the Roman. Another fact that is to be noted about Mark is that he was a follower of Peter. They are very often mentioned in scripture together and in tradition. Peter calls Mark his son, that is to say a spiritual son, and implies that Mark was in Rome one time with him. And the Gospel of Mark indicates that he was very close to Peter. First of all, there's much about Galilee, and particularly Capernaum, which was Peter's place of residence. And the Gospel points to an eyewitness, directly or indirectly, as its author. And that eyewitness was obviously Peter. For example, we are told about Peter's home and his mother-in-law. Mark says that it was Peter who called our Lord's attention to the withered tree. And it is also worth noting that details favorable to Peter are omitted in the gospel, while others, not at all favorable to Peter, are recorded. The hand that transcribed the story was that of Mark, but the voice that speaks is unquestionably that of Peter, who was on the spot. What Mark's bring, Mark brings out with swift and vivid touches is the personal action and work of the Son of God as Lord of the world and conqueror of the hearts of men. This was something that the Roman mind could understand. And so he represented Christ as establishing an increasing dominion over evil and over nature and overcoming the powers that opposed him to that last he rose from the dead. Next, the Gospel of Luke. 
Luke wrote his gospel sometime before the year 67, and Mark's, of course, was written before that time. Luke was born in Antioch, and by education and birth he belonged to the Greek world. His gospel is addressed principally to the Greeks and was composed in Greek surroundings without precluding the hypothesis of it being completed in Rome. And Luke evidently, and perhaps had, the evangelist Mark at his side, or certainly his gospel when he was writing. Luke was a medical doctor. This is evident from medical terms which Luke uses. Paul speaks of Luke as the beloved physician. Luke's narrative shows a preference for stories of healing. His language is covered by technical medical terms. Traces of diagnosis occur, also medical phraseology. In fact, you can prove that Luke was a doctor by examining certain words that he uses. Mark and Matthew have occasion to use the word needle. Now, the word needle, which they use in Greek, is sewing needle. When Luke uses the word needle, he does not use the Greek word for sewing needle, but for a surgical needle, a word that was used by a Greek physician who lived after him only by about 70 or 80 years. And then Luke records that our Lord sent forth his missionaries both to preach and to heal. He also preserves our Lord's word, physician, heal thyself. But most important of all, he alone narrates the virgin birth. If there was anyone whom we think would not narrate the virgin birth, if it were not true, it would be Luke, simply because he was a physician. And yet he's the one, the doctor, who gives us an account of it. Finally, John. John wrote toward the end of the first century and for the Christian world. But this time, a generation had lived which had seen God in the flesh. The burning words of the Master had circulated from home to home and from city to city. Men were eating the bread of life. Paul's epistles were circulated and spread like prairie fire over the Roman Empire. Now Matthew had written for the Jews, Mark for especially for the Romans, Luke for the Greeks. These were three representative peoples of the world. But John wished to put on record those spiritual aspects of our Lord's ministry which had not been recorded by the other three and for which the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks were not then ready. So John directs his gospel to the Christians. And the fourth gospel, before its writing and publishing, had been spoken by its author to an immediate circle of disciples. So when he set it down, he continued to presume that his readers already knew about the life of Christ. St. John proposes to perfect this knowledge and make his readers penetrate into the intimacy of the Master and to understand his most profound thoughts. St. John also said at the end of his Gospel that the world would not be large enough to contain the books if he had written down all the miracles our Lord had worked. So the Church was finally established throughout the Roman Empire when John wrote. It was no wonder then that after having seen the persecution under Nero, after having suffered his own banishment under Domitian, after having heard of the trials of Paul, 
that when the time came for him to write the gospel, it would be the echo of a harp whose perturbed strings were smitten by blood-stained hands and then swept by the mighty wind of inspiration of the Spirit into the greatest gospel that was ever written. This is the gospel of John. God love.